does was said, China is a big country. Um, and that is really important when we think about the role that technology plays in governing the country. And that's what I'm going to talk about. I'm unfortunately not in the wonderful business of selling great coffee. And here I have to admit, I'm regularly in China, where I suffer from jet lag. And Luckin Coffee has been my best friend uh, on more than one occasion. So thank you for that. Um, but I come at it from the slightly more boring angle of law and policy. In other words, how does the Chinese state look at technology? What is it doing? And how does it seek to combine uh, the benefits of technology with a certain amount of control? Now, when we talk about the Chinese state and the internet uh, and technology in general, usually what we talk about isn't great. And it has, to be, uh, it has to be underlined that in a number of areas, most notably security and surveillance, there really are some very legitimate worries about what's happening in China. And um, you know, when I talk to my friends who are working there, for instance, in the uh, European delegation, there are also some concerns, for instance, about Chinese market access for foreign technology firms. However, these are things that are fairly well reported. These are things that are fairly well known. And that's not the entirety of the story, because there is, a, there is a different angle to it there. Even the most cynical observer has to recognize that authoritarian though China might be, um, and even if it is one of the key goals of the Communist Party of China to remain in power, it has discovered that one of the, one of the better ways of doing so is actually making sure that they deliver. In other words, that people have as little as possible to complain about. Um, it's very clear, China is not North Korea. So if you are the Communist Party of China and you want to do that, how do you do it? Well, interestingly, for a technology conference, um, they're engineers. And you know this is very often said. Uh, it's slightly less true for this leadership generation than for previous leadership generations. But China is run disproportionately by people who have an engineering degree. But it isn't just the degree, it's the mindset. Um, if you become a senior official in the Chinese government, you're sent to, uh, to a party school for training, right? How do you run your ministry, your department, uh, whatever you're put in charge of? And one of the key elements there is actually systems theory. So the Communist Party of China looks at society in the same way that a systems engineer looks at a system. It's a machine where different parts talk to each other, feedback loops, cybernetics. And so if you figure out the underlying laws of the system, you can not only understand what happens, but predict and control it. So from the Chinese government's perspective, technology actually delivers the computational and informational power to better realize their program. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means uh, in terms of things like social care uh, in the future. But then there's something else really, really, really interesting that happened. And that is the emergence of a technology industry. Now, as we all know, uh, China has, with a very significant degree of success, come up with a development model that integrates market mechanism with in a number of areas, uh, a quite strong degree of state control. 
We are no longer in a planned command economy, but we still have the five-year planning cycles where government is actually quite clear and transparent about its priorities and objectives and coordinates not just businesses, but also universities, research centers, uh, and other institutions towards realizing uh, those objectives. And so that means that in reality, you have a bit of a two-tier economy. On the one hand, you have what the Chinese government calls the strategic commanding heights, right? Core sectors of the economy which are, large, which are largely, if not completely, run by state-owned or state-controlled enterprises, where on the one hand, market functioning is important, but on the other hand, they also are very politically relevant, and therefore, um, the party state wants a bit more control there. Uh, energy, telecommunications, media. And on the other hand, you have an economy retail, most manufacturing and consumer goods, where the Chinese government is essentially very happy for it not to uh, exercise that much control. Now here's something very interesting happened. You would expect that the internet industry, and the technology industry, would be part of that strategic commanding heights, given the fact that it is so important. And it isn't. As Vivica already indicated just now, Internet and technology is pretty much the only sector of strategic importance in China that is largely occupied by private businesses. And why did that happen? Very simply because the Internet is new. Right? These strategic commanding height sector were determined in the early 90s and they haven't really changed. Neither has the governing structure. And so what happened with the technology industry is that it grew very quickly, almost out of nowhere, and in a way that was really unexpected by many, including the party state. And that has led to some really, really interesting experiences, right? Traditionally, the Chinese government has certainly since the early 80s seen scientific and technological uh, progress as an absolute priority. It's really invested a lot in scientific research, uh, technological capabilities, and so on and so forth. But because of the state control uh, in these commanding heights, innovation wasn't always as uh, strong as it could be. And now what happened is, you know, because the state really wasn't paying that much attention, suddenly all these sectors developed. And yes, particularly in the area of uh, things like social media in the beginning, there have been some clampdowns. But, but the state learned a, less, uh, learned a really interesting lesson really quickly. And that is, wait a minute. These private businesses are doing things that we want and that we cannot do ourselves. Right? Tencent provides really useful social media platforms for everyone, but also for the Chinese government, right? Chinese local governments, national governments, individual ministries and departments, they all have their own uh, WeChat and Weibo accounts, which um, help with communicating with the citizenry. In a country where food security is really a big problem, uh, Alibaba um, and its e-commerce platform combined with the availability of increasingly powerful and increasingly affordable smartphones like Xiaomi's phones, Huawei phones, have actually made it possible to cut out much of the middleman and have um, farmers, food producers, sell directly to consumers. 
Indeed, there is a phenomenon known as Taobao villages. Taobao is the, uh, the big e-commerce marketplace uh, that belongs to Alibaba, where the economy of these entire villages has been transformed by their ability to sell direct uh, to consumers, which has really improved uh, economic development opportunities in the countryside, which you know, traditionally was a lot poorer than the cities. And so what the Chinese government learned is, rather than killing this because we didn't plan for it, we are going to learn to accommodate it and live with it. And so, yes, these internet businesses have a very good relationship with the Chinese state. And that is because it is in both sides' interest. The technology industry is key for the Chinese government in realizing a lot of its domestic uh, development objectives, as I said just now, but also for continuing to climb up the value chain and retain a greater amount of economic revenue within China, also from international markets. And here it has to be said, businesses like Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, uh, um, and uh, Huawei, that developed in the Chinese context I would argue, have a much bigger skill set in dealing with um, underdeveloped markets and underdeveloped governmental infrastructure that much better positions them to go after the next billion of the global population to be connected than Western technology companies. I'll give you one stupid example, and it underlines also why the Chinese population uh, has, on the whole, been extremely uh, fast in adopting all of these new technologies. Imagine you have Jeff Bezos and you want to set up Amazon, right? Obviously, you've got a couple of things to work out. You need to have a web, uh, you need to have a website. You need to have uh, your own logistics and uh, warehousing system. But there's a lot of ready-made infrastructure that you can tap into. For instance, if you want to process payments, you can just sign an agreement with Visa, MasterCard, American Express, diners, um, and hey presto, you can process payments. In China, if you're Alibaba, you're faced with much bigger problems. When I first started going regularly to China 15 years ago, you'd go into a shop and you, know, you, you, you might buy a bottle of water and something to eat, a couple of other things. And the cash register would literally be a cardboard box stuffed with banknotes uh, and an abacus. Like people were calculating by hand how much you needed. And as Vivica already indicated, we're now at the stage where, in many places, when I go to China, and obviously I don't have a Chinese bank account, so I can't, uh, I can't use uh, these online payment systems, I take out my cash and people look at me as though I've just arrived from the Stone Age. Um, Beggars in the street have a QR code so you can donate to them on WeChat Pay. But for, but for Alibaba, that was infrastructure that they had to build themselves, right? The traditional Chinese banking system was set up to facilitate investments to large infrastructure projects, to government investment projects, not to cater to the needs of individuals and small businesses. And no matter how the government was behind them uh, or, or has tried to stimulate them for, for, for these banks to do that, that's not what happened. So Alibaba had to build it. 
and they did. Now, how do you build an online payment system in a country where no one has a financial record? Right? How do you give people credit scores? How do you know that people are trustworthy? Well, you also have to build your own trust system, which is called Sesame Credit. There's a lot written about that. Um, some people seem to think that it's sort of the Chinese government taking everyone's data uh, and sort of uh, controlling their entire lives. Certainly at this moment, that seems not to be the case. Indeed, there was Financial Times reporting just earlier today that suggests that um, no financial data, at least, has gone from large internet companies to the state. What that means, though, is that a company like Alibaba that has had to deal with overcoming these difficulties in China and that has built up these really successful systems can easily also transport that knowledge to, to less developed countries all over the world and replicate. And this is something that we are really, really, really underestimating. Also, the leap in efficiency that that makes possible, right? Things like Apple Pay haven't really taken off in Europe or even in North America in the way that Alipay and Tencent Pay have in China. Why is that? Well, in many cases, it's because we already have, for instance, a, um, a bank card, credit card or debit card, system that works fairly well. So for us, the efficiency gains um, from moving to a mobile payment are smaller than they would be in China, where you don't move from a bank card system, but you move from the cardboard box with random notes of money uh, strewn around. However, what that means for these companies, and what it may also come to mean for the Chinese government, is that by moving to these mobile systems, to a certain degree, the Chinese government might be right. It might indeed deliver the informational and computational capability to not just uh, create business success in the way that we've seen it, uh, for instance, explained just now in Vivica's presentation, but also for better models of governance. Um, where one of the big problems in China today is, you know, it's a huge country. I'm Belgian. More people take the subway in Beijing every day than live in Belgium. How do you run a country on that scale? And even at the most basic level, let's say that I'm a citizen in Beijing, I go to Shanghai, I fall down a flight of stairs, I go to the hospital, they can't even, they can't even uh, access my patient data. So what the Chinese government is trying to do is to integrate those data also for, um, also for uh, the delivery of public services, public goods, healthcare, education. And like I said, there are many things that one can say and think about the Chinese government, and I certainly think my fair share of them. But simply from the humanitarian point of view, Anything that gets better healthcare to underprivileged people anywhere in the world, including China, is a good thing. Still, it is always possible you know, to think about some criticism. Like I said, the Chinese government looks at its society as engineers, right? It's a machine that they organize. What that means is that there's sometimes very little space for bottom-up voices. It remains very much a top-down project, even if part of what the Chinese government uh, tries to do is actually use the data to learn more about society. Because interestingly, 
lower-level officials, uh, lower officials don't always provide the most accurate information upstream to their, uh, to their seniors, right? So particularly higher levels of government are actually using some of that information generated by private businesses to actually learn what's going on on the ground, which is also a very interesting thing. Um, but it also means, for instance, that uh, what, these, what these public services contain is very often still decided at, uh, uh, from the top down. And so, uh, a couple of presentations ago, Ms. Taylor talked a little bit about inclusivity in the gaming world. Well, this is one problem, right? Uh, inclusivity and diversity, for instance, is not yet very much part of the way that the Chinese government looks at, uh, looks at technology and society. Um, it may well become so in the future, in the sense that certainly uh, certain gains have been made there. Uh, but the way that the political system functions makes it very difficult for uh, these bottom-up needs to be um, to be transformed into political action. Nevertheless, if there is anything to be learned from China, it is this, and certainly about China. Although we might think, and you know, in some cases with some justification, that China is a country that tightly controls everything, and certainly it does that with particular forms of online content. What it actually has done in the technological field is step back. It allowed an ecosystem to develop. It actually, it actually actively learned lessons from what these businesses are doing and how they can help. Now, obviously, they're at the point where there's slightly more intervention, particularly in the realm of data protection, because you know, when an industry develops, so do industry abuses. What China has also done very well is to say, we don't know where this will go, but we're going to try and support it in a vectored manner. So there are some things we'd like to achieve, and there are more than enough planning documents, and I've translated a whole host of them. Please send me an email if you want links to some of them, about where they want to be and where they want to go. And they have integrated forces to move towards those goals, but with a fairly low level of micromanagement and opening up possibilities for serendipitous benefits, right? They're training. AI specialists, engineers, and so on and so forth. There's really a lot of money being thrown into education, research, uh, and other forms of support, uh, creating, uh, creating development parks, uh, sort of, you know, startup parks where you can experiment. And obviously, you know, most of these experiments will fail because most experiments fail. But you don't know which ones are going to fail when you do them. You have to do the 100 experiments to get the 10s that are successful. And the Chinese government has actually positioned itself fairly well for these experiments to lead to completely unintended but extremely impactful um, positive outcomes in terms of new business models, in terms of new technologies. Yes, there is still a lot of catch-up to do. Yes, obviously, there are all the political points that I mentioned. And yes, certainly now the trade war with the United States is a real risk. All I wanted to say is that that's not the entire story. And there's a lot of nuance to look at. And indeed, a lot of opportunities, not just for Chinese businesses, but also for Western business in China, in Europe, and increasingly in the rest of the world. And with that, I'd like to thank you.
Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Again, have we got time just for one question? Because I'm, I'm, oh. I'm, I'm, you are sticking around though, right? Because you're taking part in a, a panel discussion yeah. later with our next two speakers. Yeah, I'll be. Uh, yeah, and that's going to be 3 p.m. in the other venue. Yeah. Okay. Now, if there's something that comes out of your talk and Vivica's talk very loudly, is basically how slow we are in the West. It seems. How? What? What should technological companies in the West be doing to to catch up with China? Um, you know, part of the problem is that, like I said, there's actually a, mu a much bigger margin in China to improve. There's a bigger leap to make. Yeah, sure. Because China was so far behind, and, and, and we were not. Um, but certainly, part of what uh, Western businesses should do, and this is, I think, one of the big ben benefits of a conference like this, is actually work together and sort of look across you know, different things. I was having a wonderful conversation yesterday with people from the gaming industry and people from the travel industry about how you could integrate historical adventures with augmented realities in historical cities all across Europe. You know, in China, that's something you know, that, that would be taken up really, really, really quickly. The other thing is also, and that's more of a political message, part of the problem certainly in Europe is that we are divided. We, you know, China, big country, uh, over a billion people, same legal system, same language. We are much more fragmented in Europe. So also from, like I said, I'm a, I'm a law and policy analyst. From the law and policy angle, uh, there is really a lot that could be done in terms of integrating that and actually creating uh, more um, creating, creating, yeah, more efficiency. Yeah, so things uh, like Brexit, <laughs> you just think that's really going backwards. Well, as someone who lived in uh, the United Kingdom for five years, it's, uh, it's, it's incredibly painful to see how the entire country seemed to have co uh, collectively taken leave of its senses. That's a bad thing. Yeah. Um, a good thing um, is also, you know, the, the sort of integration that China's really good at. Yeah. Letting universities, government, bringing universities, governments, and businesses together, not necessarily, you know, to have strong planned economy, but to actually think strategically about how, act uh, about how we can sort of move all of this forward. Okay, so there's a lot to learn from China. I would say so. Great. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>